Hello, and welcome to Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. This is a show about how artists use technology to tell their stories, and I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. We're talking today about Belfast, the new movie from writer and director Kenneth Branagh, which is loosely based on his own experiences growing up amidst the tumult of Belfast, Northern Ireland in the 1960s. I got the chance recently to sit down with the man himself, writer and director Kenneth Branagh, as well as key members of his sound post-production team. We have Neve Adiri, a re-recording mixer on the film, who won the Academy Award for Best Achievement in Sound Mixing for Gravity, as well as Simon Chase, the sound supervisor and re-recording mixer, and James Mather, the sound supervisor on the film. This was a conversation that we had for an industry crowd, and I'm grateful to our friends over at Focus Features for giving us the recording and allowing us to make it available here as a Dolby Institute podcast. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, including how sound and music is used in the first 10 minutes of the film to really set the mood and the tone and the style of the story, how sound is used to paint the world outside of the frame and give the audience a much bigger, more epic impression of Belfast and the story than necessarily is reflected in the image, and also how sound was very remarkably and effectively used to communicate the POV of the main character of the film, nine-year-old Buddy, as he lives this really amazing experience in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Let's listen to the conversation. I feel like we could probably spend uh, a couple of hours just discussing and unpacking the first 10 minutes of this movie from a sound design perspective. And I, I do want to say, I think, uh, deservedly, there's been a lot of attention paid to the beautiful black and white, uh, very rich cinematography of the film. But I'm really excited to be here having this conversation with you today, and especially, Kenneth, for you to join us to talk about the sound design, because I think there's a lot of really interesting things happening with the sound design and, and the mix on the film as well. Just to kind of focus on that that opening of the film, uh, Kenneth, you know, you open the, the film with a, uh, a montage of really beautiful shots of calm and beautiful modern present-day Belfast uh, with a, a rockin' Van Morrison tune before we transition into black and white 1968. And I'd love for you to talk about like, what was your decision around opening the film and how to set up? That first 10 minutes is so critical in terms of putting the audience in the world and explaining you know, the language that you're gonna use to tell the story. And can you talk about the tone that you wanted to set in that first 10 minutes and with that opening and how you got into it? Uh, yeah, thanks Glenn. Thanks for your appreciative uh, remarks about all this. I really uh, thank, thank you for that. Um, all beginnings, of course, are very important. And, um, you know, underneath the whole film, which mostly takes place in period Belfast, is this um, uh, sort of why we tell the story. And I think we, you, tell, you tell stories like this lest we forget uh, what happened, even though, as you say, the modern Belfast, which was important to present at the beginning of the film, is... Um, in this fragile but beautiful piece that's been so hard won from all the turmoil that went before. So in the first color section, the idea was to really, um, A, give us the musical voice of Belfast that was going to dominate the film. That's Van Morrison. He's given us this new song, uh, Down, Down to Joy. Uh, and so it's meant to be quite a joyful um, uh, experience uh, before we go back into that darker time. And we already began seasoning inside the music all the other sounds of Belfast, which growing up um, uh, and given that the perspective of the film is mostly through the nine-year-old boy, the things that I heard were, um, you know, the sounds of the docks, uh, the sounds of the birds, the sea is so close, Belfast is right on the lock, it's a huge port. Um, and we started immediately to have this sort of sense of vibrant life, both in the colour but also in the sound um, and a sort of celebratory kind of very vital, very present sound picture was what we were after, but, but subtle because we knew that the first three movements were that, as it were, modern Belfast. Then the second one was uh, harmonious or peaceful Belfast, uh, a street advertising this notion that it takes a village to raise a child. And then we go into the pivotal moment in the entire movie, which is when the world turns upside down because of violence coming into this otherwise, you know, harmonious place. And um, 
in the second and third parts of that opening movement, I think what um, became clear was that the the sound design of these very talented uh, folk would be a really essential element of trying to make the film as 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 small as it is superficially an epic. So sound was about bringing the the epic dimension into the small street seen through the eyes of the nine year old boy and importantly heard through the ears of the nine year old boy because what happens after a few minutes into the film is that there's a sort of sense of overwhelm. Um, world turned upside down, ground lifted from beneath your feet, and then afterwards, after celebration, peace, comes sort of cacophony. Uh, so it was a kind of big invitation to the boys to say, um, you know what, we've only got the budget we've got, we've only got the, uh, we've only got the size of street we've got, but we've got a massive and impressionable imagination in the mind of this nine-year-old boy. Please embody it over to you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, Kenneth, you have you have teed up many, many, many subjects for us to talk about in the next few minutes. Uh, Simon and James, can you talk about your approach to that opening sequence? And I just, it's so remarkable to me, I, as Kenneth so eloquently set up, you've got those, that beautiful long tracking shot of Buddy going down the street and people calling his name. And it's just this remarkably peaceful, like just, it's just, it's just a, a wonderfully life-affirming, joyous kind of neighborhood. And then it pivots in a moment and becomes a very, very dangerous, uh, violent place. And this is all happening, honestly, in the first like seven minutes of the film. So can you talk about the approach to, uh, to that opening sequence and that riot specifically? Yeah, thanks. We, 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 obviously it does start as, as, uh, Ken was explaining with this, this real positive, uh, vibe in the street and you know that's enhanced we got a lot of uh, extra recordings from actors both children adults from Belfast to sort of enhance the the shot that was already there in terms of adding in that friendly atmosphere obviously almost to the point of exaggeration but you know that, this is a theme we'll no doubt touch on a few times you know there's the realism and we talked to Ken you know Ken what were the sounds you heard growing up and and then there's also the memory of a child and what, and then the child's perception anyway is perhaps a little skewed. So you're, you're kind of already two steps removed and this very imaginative child this, with a with bigger imagination. So sometimes we're going with real and sometimes we're hyper real. So we were in a very privileged position to have Ken with us throughout the mix. So there was a lot of exploration um, throughout the process, but particularly that opening scene, if I remember rightly, there we had a music track there at one stage, which drove the energy and it was very dynamic and it was very, um, it, it, it kind of, it, somehow it, it kept us slightly removed, I think, a little bit from the action. And when, when Ken decided to strip the music out, the vitality and the, um, the presence of the community and where you were became much more real. You became much more engaged in it and part of it. And that was a, that was something that we just, that, that we've, I can't think of a situation where a mix where we've had that much collaboration throughout the entire day, every day. And it made the process much more, um, cognitive to us. I mean, it reminded me of my childhood, but being, playing in the streets and, and, you know, having fun, not having TV to watch, but, just being outdoors all the time and, and messing around, being called in for tea. And it just, it, it's, um, it's a very nostalgic opening for me. I think the film opens with a real sense of nostalgia that, that tells you everything you need to know until the point of, of crisis. And then it's a whole different thing. But without that setup, the crisis doesn't have the same impact. You kind of need to know that everything is lovely and wonderful and enjoyable and familiar. A lot of people have asked me as I've gone along here, you know, why did you want to write it or what, what drove you to write it? And interestingly, given what we're talking about today, what I found myself coming up with is almost the reason I wrote it was to revisit the moment when I heard what seemed to be a sort of 
um, it was in the sort of surreal 20 seconds where literally my life changed was to do with hearing. It was to do with, are those, is that a bumblebee I'm hearing? Are those bees I'm hearing? They're not, what are they? What is that fuzzy thing at the bottom of the road? Uh, those aren't bees. Oh no, those are people. Oh no, this is a riot. of that in my mind in my memory and that drove the writing of it was that thing so once we that moment so it's weird not to you know no pressure for the boys there but like it was as if the you know the, the kind of this central sort of pivot for the whole thing was was in a way the sound i'm not just saying this because we're talking about this was the sound picture across the moment when he what you might describe those 20 seconds in sound terms as an element of the film that describes the last day of my childhood because after that, everything changed. So we stripped it down, and then it was over to the boys. Maybe, Neve, you might want to talk about this, about then what we did, because as James said, there was a lot of experimenting, and frankly, I never know whose idea was what, but we didn't necessarily go for the sound of bees, but we went for something that said that this, across this two rounds of this 360-degree circular track with everything happening, that this was somehow our launch pad for the entire film. We had Buddy coming down the street, and um, we, we recently played this to an audience, James and I, and spoke to them about it. And we asked them, after the end of the whole film, let alone the whole riot, um, how many of you remember what's the sound Buddy's hearing just before the riot starts? And no one could really remember, which was kind of perfect, because actually what happens is we, we flag it in the colour section that there are trains, and that, and that train sound po pokes through, and... It was interesting to me, will that stick in their mind? Because we start hearing a train. Now, of course, at this point, you don't know there's a riot about to happen. You don't know. And you're aware that there are trains in Belfast. And then the train's getting louder and louder and louder to the point of something's going on here. This this is now not natural. And um, somebody's got a look in his eye and... And then suddenly the, um, the, the, the riot sound comes in, but in, again, a, a morphed way that you can't really tell what it is, and they're blurry in the background. So that um, moment, then suddenly you, 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 it starts to dawn on you that there are people there, and it's not a train. And then suddenly your brain kind of forgets that there was that train thing, but that acts as this sort of real stroke, surreal bridge between those two worlds of... But he was hearing something and he doesn't understand it. It doesn't necessarily relate to um, what what's happening, but it's just a trigger to say something's changed here and Buddy's not got the grip on it. I mean, and a nod to the Godfather, obviously, that's always fun. I want to follow up on something um, that Kenneth, you were saying, and, and Simon, you were touching on as well, which is one of the things that happens in that opening sequence, and it's really subtle, but it happens very quickly, is you establish that you're going to use Buddy's POV from a sound standpoint. Uh, and it's right in that sequence when he turns around and he sees those people down at the end of the lane, Ken, as you, as you talked about. But can you talk about, I, I feel like throughout this entire film, there's so much um, that's happening that's really from Buddy's point of view. And can you talk about using the sound design to put us in Buddy's you know, it's almost like we're hearing the world as Buddy hears it. I think that's a good way of putting it. I think that um, we basically did our big shopping list of everything that you might hear before the riot and then everything that happens after the riot. So that is people shouting in neighbor, neighboring streets, that is police sirens, that is uh, helicopters, that is uh, walkie-talkies, uh, that is other people running, that is the sounds of, um, you know, sort of urban clanking, smashing of trash cans and things, the sort of sense of being uh, overloaded by a moment, you know, this moment that started on August the 15th, 1969, uh, was led to, in that month of August, a greater displacement of a population 
in any city in Europe since the Second World War. So the, the, what was going on in that, in that city was sort of um, catastrophic. So it felt as though it gave us a lot of license to say that we, we, could, we could hear the sounds relative to what we were seeing, but beyond that, that there was a kind of powerful um, cacophony in, in, the, in the surrounding streets, in the air, you know, broken glass, you know, uh, that, and, and also another thing that, that obviously, given the title of the film, is a character in the movie, is the city of Belfast itself. City of Belfast, big industrial 19th century city, where in 19th century, in the sense of that's where it got its power from, shipbuilding, um, you know, railways, uh, factories making linens and cigarettes and all sorts, and factory whistles and all the rest of it. So we, it was a, a license. And in fact, the, the way the process worked, from my point of view, would be with the boys to talk about stuff like this. But then they went away to do an enormous amount of work and then would lay things out for me. And then, yes, obviously, my job is then to have a sort of editorial function in, in all of that. But um, it meant that there was a lot of room for their, at least I felt this, um, for their interpretive um, creativity relative to that sort of stimulus. And as I say, for me, the uh, what it meant was that in a, you know, relatively low budget film, uh, there there was a chance to create what, what was happening for the boy, which was whether he liked it or not, partly because of the way his imagination worked, from a peaceful street, he began to live in an epic Western story. Uh, and that other sort of heightened quality of life seen and heard through the movies in the imagination of a creative kid sent us into that sort of non-naturalistic territory as well. On a small scale, it happened as well. And I, I, sometimes it wasn't, I think it kept happening and it wasn't necessarily always planned because it, it, there's one scene when I was looking, talk, thinking about uh, Buddy's POV and how it affects him through the movie. Um, there's a scene where he's playing with his toy cars right in the front of frame. And there's archive footage, which again keeps keeps coming up on on screens and through radios, through that, which is just another lovely texture to work with through the film, with all these different, um, you know, as we talked about the sound of Belfast, we've got this archive footage, which has got such a great quality to it. And then his parents, not quite arguing in the background, but, um, you know, having a heated conversation about the situation they're in, and Buddy's just getting on with playing with his cars. And I, it's kind of, it really grew, it sort of hit me late after the process that that's kind of the life of a little boy, isn't it? You've got maybe a Western on TV or an argument, but you've got these cool cars, but it's all going in and it's all sort of having an effect on young buddy. And he's, he's having to go, okay, I don't know whether I want to think about this now, but we're just with him in the cars, but that's happening over there. That's happening over there. And and so on, from the big scale, yes, sometimes it's helicopters, sometimes it's a distant siren or a tannoy telling people to clear a street, but it can be on the very small scale as well, and that that's really effective. I think another really important point is that it keeps simmering in the background. So there were there were very quiet scenes, you know, very moving scenes with scenes with just two people or three people, and the most important thing about the scene is is what's happening in the scene and the conversation beautiful little conversations and relationships family relationships and but in the background you always there was always something simmering if it was a shout or if it was a siren or a helicopter and and again what james said about having ken in a room with us which was you know absolutely uh, priceless and it doesn't happen a lot and um so i think what i enjoyed most of it is that Every shot, we decided, okay, we're not going to have everything because the most important thing is the dialogue um, and the story. But let's have the sirens in this shot. Let's have just the helicopter on that on, in that scene. Let's just have birds in this scene and, and just the sirens passing through. The boss has been in touch. They want me to stay on. Permanent job in England. Wanting me to move into management. It's more money. There's a house that goes with it. We get it rent-free with a chance to own it if things go well. A wee bit bigger than what we have here. A room for each of the boys. 
There's a wee garden too. Are you allowed to play football in that garden, Daddy? I so. If I say yes, there's more money straight away. We could start getting on top of that back tax now. This family's not going to get another chance like that in this time, not now. Here, watch out for that traffic there. I'm watching it now, Mommy. It's okay. So you had the natural sounds and the environment and maybe a laughter, but um, the, the, the danger and the, the, the tension and the stress in the street kept simmering on. And, uh, and we could just sort of concentrate on one or two elements, um, but we could keep it going throughout. And just, just to connect to what Simon says, you know, he would have heard it all. And obviously, he can remember it all. So he heard it all, and it, it got right into his, you know, got stuck in his mind. Um, so I think that was a very clever, a clever way to just keep the audience sort of, you know, involved in the story, but on edge as well to know that all this stuff is happening. Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, that's right, Neil. And but a couple of things uh, attended to that were that. Uh, it wasn't always it wasn't always the sound or the drama of of uh, you know incursive violence. A couple of moments I really like are one where we just it's a tinkling, it's this merest soupçon sprinkling uh, of an ice cream van. Don't know if you have them in the states, but the ice cream vans used to come around. It was a huge treat, and it would you know it'd be and you'd hear it from a few streets away. It had the magic, you know, sound-wise. It was definitely tuned into what will make children buy sugar, uh, that, that that sound range, you know. And, and so we had a little bit of that. And then there was one, this is also a very strong feature of life in Belfast or in religious communities. There's another, um, and I really enjoyed what um, uh, Simon was saying about a scene where boy looks at cars Tele television says milk bottles are being used for uh, petrol bombs and parents are saying uh, you have to do something with those kids because they're being they don't even know what they're being exposed to the scene itself was like this is the brainwashing happening he's playing with the cards and he's he's hearing about petrol bombs the scene was immediately followed by scene with father and son saying don't join gangs don't deliver milk because it ain't milk they're putting in the bottles but in the background, we had these very light but very insistent church bells. Again, not in themselves violent, but just as part of the simmer that Neve was talking about, it was just a different color. So I liked, I enjoyed the way the boys found different ways of just having that exterior unsettling influence. But it wasn't always dressed in dark, dramatic colors. Sometimes it was just a simple, innocent ice cream van but by the time we got to that stage in the movie it started to make you nervous can i love that i want to follow up uh, on something that you were just saying about about how using sound to kind of strike that ominous tone one of the things i made a note to myself is um you know, it seems like whenever billy clanton shows up to kind of you know shake down the father figure there's sort of an ominous tone that plays underneath that and i was curious was that was that sound design was that was that a score element that van morrison contributed like i i i love these kind of moments when i'm not really sure where i'm you know who's responsible for what i'm hearing but it just contributes to that very unsettling kind of feeling that I had. As the film developed, as James was saying, we began to strip out lots of music. It was originally sort of almost wall to wall as I tried to work my way through what it was all about. Then it became just Van. And then, and then, and, and then we had, as Neve was saying, lots of scenes where it was the dialogue of the relationships, but still this sort of subtle peppering of the subtle characterization of uneasy silence. Um, and then I just remember saying at one stage, we, we won't ask Van um, because it doesn't need to be musical, but what could we do? What could we do to make the audience aware without, you know, smacking them over the head uh, or it turning into something melodramatic that when Clanton appears, just, it, you know, that you, the, the blood drains from your face and your heart sink. So basically that's what I remember. And then it went back into the brain trust here with the, the three wise men. And, um, you know, some, and you, you, well, I have to say it's four, four wise men in this case, because um, Thomas Blazukas, who was working with us, uh, came up with those sounds. I think they were, um, uh, I think at one point they had train elements in them as well, but maybe that got so subtle that it doesn't really register. But again, it was, again, maybe to, again, keep it on the edge of 
is this, what are we hearing here again? And, and you being unsure as to what it was, I think is great because that's the whole point. Yeah, I think it was. There was we started with a lot, and then to start stripping it, stripping it back, until we ended up with one, you know, one simple thread that told you straight away. And you know, by repeating it every time, you understood that this is the, this is what we're listening. This is what we're doing. And um, but there was also an element of taking things out and isolating the moment, um, which gives you the impression then okay, everything else disappeared. Um, from from Buddy's mind or from the viewer's mind, wherever you want to put them, um, and what, all we're hearing is that threat. And um, yeah, so when you have a rich environment, which we had, you know, a very rich palette. Once you start stripping it out, you've got that you've got that feeling that you know things are things are uh, different, and there is a shift, you know, shift in the mood and in the in the danger in that in that case. What, one strange point of reference was that at one point in this movie, if you can believe it, uh, we included some of the title sequence of uh, the movie Bad Day at Black Rock, uh, the opening of which has enormous widescreen shots of a train arriving at a kind of one-horse town in the desert where Spencer Tracy's black-clad investigating officer will try and work out who who murdered in this town? And I remember that was full of intense sounds, big railway noises, a big score, massive images. And then once the train stopped and he got he came down those steps, it was an eerie sound picture of when that train left. You didn't want to be in that place. And that reminded me of the sort of the unease that the as it were the atmosphere of the Billy Clanton scene should have. I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Kenneth. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about is I, I love the sequences uh, when Buddy goes to the movie or when he and his grandma go to see a Christmas Carol. And and obviously, you know, one of the the the, the thing that immediately jumps out at you when you see those sequences is that you you those are are depicted in glorious full fidelity color uh, in contrast to the black and white. And I'm curious, uh, f- did you also with those sequences, you know? I mean, part of that is just uh, understand this concept that these moments are so incredibly vivid for Buddy and that they imprint on him. And this is your story, Kenneth. So I, I presume this was this is how you remember you know, this stuff from your youth. But did you also treat the sound in those sequences very specifically as well to kind of differentiate it from the rest of Buddy's world? I think the, the you know, the beautiful license we had with this is uh, that it had this imaginative element. I'm writing about something 50 years ago and through the eyes of a nine-year-old, there's not going to be objective truth. There'll be a sort of emotional truth to it. And the emotional truth about watching the movies at the cinema was that I became enraptured by a medium that I had absolutely no idea I could ever be involved with. All, all that I understood was this widescreen color was so immersive. And you saw, that's partly why we're in black and white, the monotone world in which I lived under northern gray, rainy northern skies. Uh, I saw, I kind of saw in black and white, but when I went to the movies, I was transported. And I knew that that in this film, one of the loveliest transitions that I enjoy, it's everybody's work, um, is when we're in the street in this sort of black and white that also is inspired by some of the sort of uh, working class realism pictures of the 60s of this sporting life, Saturday night and Sunday morning, pictures like that, working class life, but presented both poetically and glamorously through black and white. And we go from the street and we do a sort of smash cut to liquid lava, a great orange intensity uh, of of uh, volcanic uh, bubbling from a million years BC. And yes, undoubtedly, and I don't know what the boys received, actually, they can tell you technically in terms of what was the, you know, available to us from the tracks from the, the movie itself. But I wanted significantly thicker and richer stuff. For me, whether I was hearing it through a, a steam radio or not, when I was in the Capitol Cinema on the Antrim Road, nine years old, it sounded to me like we were in quadraphonic, you know, and uh, those Ray Harryhausen stop, stop motion monsters, you know, put the shits up me. And so I needed the sound to do the same thing. Plus also, just as a general ambience for the aesthetic of the film, you would continue if you could really, with the sound picture and the cut and the color, hit the audience, you would surprise and unsettle them in a positive way, in just the same way as once that riot happened, our entire lives from that point on were 
unsettled. We never knew what was going to happen. So um, the sound invite there, again, it's the same thing. Once we found the right cut, it was like, how far can we go to – you know, bring monsters and uh, and uh, lava and Raquel Welsh into the into, into the lives of our cinema audience. Neve, can you tell us a little bit about uh, uh, mixing those particular sequences and kind of you know, as Ken said, what was the, what were the elements that you had that 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 came to you and how did you make them as big as possible? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the guys could talk more about editorially what what they had. I think we had the the original some of the original audio, but what was uh, obviously, what gave us the opportunity to make it bigger is obviously tracking of, of sound effects and, and extra extra uh, explosions and lava and all these different elements that actually were tracking for the whole for the whole film or movie in the cinema to give us that you know bigger uh, more sort of uh, beautiful sounding uh, piece. We also we were able to use more you know the of the surround environment in the um, the mix it in Atmos. Um, so we were able to use a little bit more of that in those sequences, which filled the room out and like Ken was saying, made it made, made it immersive. Um, so we are we used you know all the uh, all the tricks that we could have done to make that 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 impact. And it's actually you know it's it's really effective. Obviously, having the color back gives you that license to go you know. Uh, sonically a bit more shar- sharper and more colorful if you like um so yeah we, we i enjoy that very much also you know like many many places in this film took me back to where you know i experienced my first movie mine mine was tarzan i'm ashamed to say but it was in a you know i remember it like it was yesterday and i was you know probably that age and the the size of the screen the size of the sound and that that shout you know and uh that tells you, you know, that was magic. And, you know, thinking about it now, it was probably through a very bad mono speaker behind the screen. And we could probably, probably could hardly hear it if you think about it, you know, uh, you know, now terms, but um, it still makes that impression. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's the same with the, with the theater, you know, uh, we played with the, with the voices there and pitched them down to just to make it, to make that big impression on the audience, like, and like a, the boy had, you know, like, like Buddy had. I'm curious how the three of you work together. Simon, you're a re-recording mixer, obviously co-supervising sound editor uh, uh, with James as well. Um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, I, I know, uh, Neve, you mixed effects and music and Simon mixed dialogue, which is a little unusual. Can you talk about, about sort of how the three of you work together and how you develop this kind of unique working style? James and I have worked together for a long time and, uh, you know, I'm, I've definitely got far bigger history with dialogue. And, um, you know, in terms of the crew personnel, it evolved and, you know, changed through time. Um, but James actually mixed all our temp mixes. So James was, you know, at each kind of milestone, James was, you know, shaping the sound of, of okay, this is how we're going to be present it, presenting it for this screening for whatever purpose we were doing one. Um, but we, and I was very much... Uh, you know, keeping an eye on the dialogue during those. Um, and then by the time we got to the final mix, you know, I, I, I was so familiar with the dialogue and it, it just made sense for me to just carry on being in charge of that side of things and, and to have Neve um, uh, come come in and mix the music and effects just, just kind of made sense with how it was all going. Right, James? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was a, it, it, the, the nice thing about the way we worked was that the benefit of having Neve come on board at that stage gave us a fresh approach um, and somebody who hadn't heard all the, the build-up towards where we got to. And as we said earlier, um, having Ken in the room meant that we made a lot of changes and a lot of decisions as we went through the mix. Um, and But having Neve's uh, sensitivity and his, his good nature and obviously his talent to, to make sure that we... We could all be objective and subjective about it together and not, I think one of the things I find quite often if I'm, if I'm mixing a movie as well as involved in the track lay is that you, you, you're kind of too focused on what's in front of you and not what's around you. And actually sometimes it's very nice to sit back and see it without looking at the levels and the, all the technical stuff. And in this instance, I, that, that worked really well for us because there was, 
there there are so many different ways that we could have approached it, and it grew in such a um, organic way through the through this process. Um, and actually, having the music work with the effects is it's the first time I think we've mixed like that. But it's it felt very natural. It felt like the right combination in terms of being able to keep those levels working together. The dialogues are always king, and they always sit. You know, you've got to have those first and foremost. But the rest of it, that palette, that blend of music and effects, worked really well. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know I was very lucky to be uh, to join them at the at the end for the final. I mean, personally, when I can, I try and do music and effects. Uh, if I'm allowed, um, I find that that's actually quite, um, you know, it's very useful to have music and effects, uh, especially if things, you know, busiest sequences for sure. When you know you you got the two hands, you know, the one brain talking to the two hands, and the music and effects takes uh, take the balance. I find that uh, very easy, and and I love doing that. Um, and yeah, and I had the opportunity to do it here, and I think what James was saying is. Is true. I mean, when I watched it for the first time, it was with a some form of temp mix, but it was the the cutting copy, and you know, of course, it was the film was it was just beautiful. I was I was completely in love with it, and um, and I felt very lucky to be to to join them. Um, and the, the music here is you know there's songs, so we don't. It's not about loads of stems and going into and you know. Try and change this cue or that cue. There were songs, you know, and the songs had to be played, um, and the songs had a meaning, you know, when they came in, and then there was the balance between, um, you know, the dialogue and the effects. But um, I think, like James said, we worked together um, very, very well, and it was very quickly sort of we had a rhythm, and um, in a way that, that we were working, having again Ken in the room, meant that. The decisions were being made as we were mixing it, and it's not like we said, "Okay, well, let's try that," and then you run a reel and you start talking about it again, and you need to re-address everything. It meant that when we got to end of a reel, we we all been through it, and decisions were made, and we were able to watch, you know, a, a more cohesive idea of of the section of of a film, which was which was which was great. I also think that there there was um, that this particular system allowed. Uh, what it seems to me, but I don't know because I don't watch other directors mixing films, but it feels like I have a fairly obsessive concern about dialogue. I mean, James says dialogue is king. Sometimes I know something of a hot topic at the moment about about how how easy or not it is to understand dialogue uh, in films. And we had the additional challenge for some people here of uh, accents. I don't mean some people in this room. I mean, some people in the instance of this film who uh, may have questioned whether the, the accents were clear enough. I never had a problem with that, but I often have a challenge with um, uh, things like end consonants. Uh, there's, there's, barely, there's barely a reel that goes by where I'm not saying to Simon, can we get a final T or a D for this character? I'm often up and, you know, doing one one more word or one more consonant. And it's not to change accents or make things in theory clear. It's that sort of communication clarity, whatever the medium of the accent or whatever is. And um, I've always been like that. It's, I think it's coming from the theatre, but it's also wanting to have that element of it be so clear uh, that the audience don't have to do any extra work. I, I mean, unless you that is your, cho your choice, but it's never been our choice. But it does mean it gets it, – we um, – it's like a drafting process, and it goes on and on and on, or at least I feel it does. I'm sure I drive the, the fellas mad. But um, it, 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 in this case, there was enough room for us all to be doing, attending to all of it, sound effects, music, et cetera, and dialogue. It doesn't drive us mad at all. We're thrilled to be working with a director who cares so much about these small, small details. And Ken's all, definitely the best I've worked with at that, and he notices hearing you know, every bit of the sentence, that D, that T, let's go, let's go. Because, you know, um, Belfast, you know, like received pronunciation the way we speak in London or a California accent or a New York, York accent. These are very familiar to international audiences. Isn't realistically a Belfast accent isn't. So we, we need to work with that. Not only that, we want to respect that beautiful accent and those lilts because they, they, they sure are gorgeous. And not only that, the the turns of phrase. So if you have struggle understanding, you know, 
what's the line she says uh apples will grow again should they grow on a gooseberry tree now i have no idea what that means ken maybe you can explain it to me one day but there's a few turns of phrases like that they well i don't know what they mean but they're beautiful and they're fun to hear and so it's whether you you know whether you understand them or not is one thing but to hear them's real fun yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, one of the things that struck me was, uh, you know, I'm not familiar with the Belfast accent, but I got all of the dialogue. It was crystal clear to me. I didn't have any intelligibility problems. So uh, I, I kudos to to the team for taking the time. And, you know, Simon, I don't know if you had to, as, as Kenneth says, I don't know if you had to like go into alternate takes and find some consonants to you know, put right at the end of the some of those uh, letters. <laughs> we do a lot but, of uh, that, but it's it's really... Uh, it comes down to Ken being so keen to get it right. So that, you know, it, you know, this great collaboration there. Can, can I just say, just watching it from my side, um, you don't often get that um, attention, but also not that speed. And the speed that these two had uh, finding those continents and all these little let, uh, areas and fix them was, was great. It meant that we could move forward and it's not, it's not something you, um, you normally experience so that was that was that was good it's also magical when it works when you find the vowel sound that that somehow makes it clearer so something has happened simon does his magic it becomes invisible but the subtle significant impact on the way the scene plays is just uh is miraculous and we've saved a ton of performances, including many of my own, um, through just getting in afterwards and just making sure that without any sense of additional effort, a clarity that the audience doesn't have to think about is just there for free. And then they can get the writing and then get all the other experiences of watching the film and feeling and hearing the film. So it's one of those things where God is in the details and, and he doesn't have to give you a pat on the back afterwards, you know, so it's a nice feeling. It, it speaks to the fact, you know, we've done six films together now, I think, Ken, and, but I think very early on, and I think it helped with the sound effects as well and everything we were talking about, you know, you know, how, how were we able to fill up this, you know, the, the, the space of Belfast is because, you know, you've got a relationship where we can throw loads of things at the screen, loads of ideas, and there's no part of you that thinks Ken's going to go, hey, what's all that stuff you're putting in my movie? Cause he never says that he's like so grateful to hear your ideas and thoughts and he'll don't get me wrong. We take things out that he doesn't like, but there's no part of you that's worried or afraid about, Oh, shall I show this yet? It's not quite ready. Ken understands the process. He's happy to hear it. And he goes, great, let's change this, this, this. And that's why we're able to move so fast. But the same is true with the dialogue fixes. I'll throw something together sometime. And I go that, well, that's what you mean. I'll, I'll make it better in a minute, but that's what you mean. Right. And, we say yes and move on and, and, you know, then I'll sort of do a little tweak to it and a little tweak to the mix. And yeah, it's, it's a good process. That's great. I know we're coming to the end of our time. I've just got a, a, a couple of quick questions to, to wrap up. We've talked about how you did such a remarkable job of using the sound design to paint the sort of the sonic world outside of the frame and to make it make us experience a lot that we didn't necessarily see. And Kenneth, it's, it's always a little surprising for me to hear you talk about this as a low budget film because <laughs> it feels very massive in scale, but I think that's happens because of the sound, but how did you specifically use Dolby Atmos uh, to kind of give that sense of scale and scope and, and, and what were you doing um, um, with Atmos in this particular track? Well, it was always to do with detail. I think it was to do with detail and immersion, just getting those extra percentage points Big, big, big thrill for me was when we uh, when we uh, played the movie on the first night of the Belfast Film Festival. So pretty important. Everybody was there, you know, every local politician, the mayor, the secretary of state for Northern Ireland. You know, it was just it was 35 members of Jamie Dornan's family, all of Kieran Hines's sisters, Jude Hill's family, seven of my cousins, you know. It was, you know, it was a night charged with such sort of tension. So obviously before all these big screenings, I go and, you know, listen to a, a, a run through. And one of the things I remember feeling that was particularly uh, part of our Atmos world was um, in a, uh, without, well, this, this is about sort of sharing secrets. There's a moment before the scene on the bus where the parents talk about um, uh, the nature of this sacrifice. Dad's about to leave once again to go to the airport. And... In the reflection of the um, the front of the bus, we have, and it's a visual effect shot, 
we place a helicopter going across the reflection of the front of the bus. And when I was in Belfast on that afternoon, I'm sitting next to a couple of guys from the venue who are, you know, they've, they've been around a bit, they've seen a few things, but they're watching with interest. And uh, as we did that, the sound of the helicopter came from our right, just behind us, over us, and went down to the left. And both these guys went like that, you know, because they were they're in Belfast thinking. I mean, it may not have been a very pleasant thing for them, but they, they it, it really, you know, put the fear of God in them. Uh, and that was, uh, I felt, uh, that's when I thought, oh, thank you, Atmos. That's very specifically done and it's very pleasing and it's got a lot of detail in it. And it's, uh, it definitely had the desired effect um, of, in that case, thinking, Christ, that's outside and it's, and it's flying overhead and that could be dangerous. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that's a perfect example for Atmos. I think um, a lot of it was, yes, placement, placement of those elements in the right environment and helicopters and thunders and a bit of rain when it comes, you know, to come from above you. And and also the different, uh, you know, depends where you sit in the uh, in the scene, where the street is and, and where the, the sirens are coming from. Um, I personally enjoyed it a lot with the music because you got, you know, the full range around. So we can fill the room with, with music when we wanted to. And it was nice and full, you know, all around you. Um, and a lot of really... A, a effective use of Atmos is, is actually not using it for a while and then open the room up again. And that gives you the extra dimension. You know, we talked about the cinema scenes and so on. So uh, the, the riots, you know, so the riot was, you know, that first moment, which, you know, I'm not going to go into all that again, but, it, you know, that, that first spin was basically a part of the, the cacophony of sounds and not understanding what you're hearing was taking everything out and get into a complete silence before the big explosion. And then the sounds come from all around you and moving around and travel around. So, you know, we, we had, for a for a film that is really on screen, there's not a, a, a lot going on, if you like, you know, in terms of action. And we actually use it quite a lot uh, for details, like I was saying. And I think Atmos comes to, comes to life when not all the channels are used all the time, because then, because you don't notice the details is when there's actually quieter scenes and you have the one or two elements traveling around in a specific way and i think that that's where it comes to you know comes to life more great i'd love to wrap up uh just ken kenneth a question for you you were you were remarkably thoughtful uh and and detailed about how you use sound and sound design in your films and i'm i'm just curious how did that skill set come to you? Does it come out of your, is it influenced by your background in the theater? How did you learn what you know now about using sound and sound design as a storytelling tool? I think that the, um, you know, the miracle of film is that when you make your first one, uh, if you're lucky enough, and I was 30 years ago making a film of Shakespeare's Henry V, uh, to work with a lot of very, very talented people um, who let me understand that. Um, you know, the film can be a sort of drafting process where there's a, there's at least three films you make. There's the one you plan, there's the one you shoot, and there's the one you edit. And if you're lucky, they sort of organically evolve. They morph one into the other, and they, they come from the same place, but they become enriched. And and in the case of, um, of sound and its impact on post-production, from, you know, in that instance, a, a, a smaller budgeted version of a sort of epic story involving – a huge historic event, the Battle of Agincourt, uh, the understanding of what it was possible to do in that instance with um, uh, the sounds of the battle. Um, I saw recently The Last Duel, uh, Ridley Scott's film, there's an amazing sound design there, I think, on, on uh, swords and steel and everything that comes with, you know, hacking your way out of a medieval battle. I can't imagine anything more terrifying so there was a kind of uh, blossoming of that film once i began to understand how minute the detail could be but how massive the impact could could possibly uh, emerge um so i learned that there's a phenomenally creative additional role to play some that you can plan for some that you can can get you out of jail 
but actually most of the time it, it's better if it becomes this new creative um you know fine brushwork sometimes and certainly on belfast uh the sound design lifted the film to another level and i would say that the the creativity that was brought to bear uh both from una our editor in the early stages and then from our team and from denise yard our, our sound recordist is uh original recordings as well on set that we had um we were able to really elevate the film through the creativity and the imagination that meant that the film especially for something you write was continuing to evolve and what this sound mix did was allow me to have another rich deep draft of the of the of the script and for that i'll be i'll be forever grateful Fantastic. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap up our conversation about Belfast and the remarkable sound design and sound editing and mix that happened on this film. Gentlemen, I, I'm, I'm so grateful to you to, for taking the time today to talk up to us about Belfast. Uh, Kenneth Branagh, writer and director, Neva Deary, James Mather, Simon Chase. Thank you again for, uh, for joining us today for this conversation. Appreciate it. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks so much, Glenn. Thank you, Glenn. Thank Thanks you. very much. Cheers. Thank you once again to Kenneth Branagh, Neva Deary, James Mather, and Simon Chase for joining us. And I'm grateful to our friends over at Focus Features for making it uh, possible for us to share this conversation with you. If you're not already subscribed to us, I hope that you do. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our dedicated podcast feed in our show notes, or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for joining us. This has been Sound and Image Lab, the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with production support by Taylor Hines. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thank you for listening.